You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Jump back into our series of the book of Acts. So uh, if you have a Bible, please open it. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Sorry, Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. Um, the last time we, we preached about Acts was six weeks ago, I believe. So it feels like an eternity. And before we actually jump into Acts chapter 5, 17 through 26, I want, you, uh, I want us to read the previous text because for... For most of us, we, we probably forgot what we were into. So let me give you a little bit of context. I'm going to read the previous section, and then we're going to go ahead and read our, our text. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. And this is what's going to set up the next part. Verse 12 says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. <clears throat> and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest there, there joined them. But the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitude, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The prophet also gathered, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is what happened before, and this is the reason why they're about to get arrested, okay? So we continue in chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out <clears throat> and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But, with the, when, but when the officers came, they did not find them in, in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found, them, uh, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look. The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Verse 26 says, Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. We're going to stop there. This is a, a large story that we will continue to, to, um, to learn from, but we're going to stop. We're going to take it by parts. Let me go ahead and pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that today you would allow me to preach your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us, uh, teaching us, challenging us, bringing comfort, and shaping us into the image of, of your Son, Jesus. Uh, Lord Jesus, 
we give ourselves to you today. And we pray that we would love you more because of this text. In the name of Jesus, I pray. <clears throat> so I'm going to do something a little different. Uh, and I'm going to spend more time at the end with the application than I regularly do. And the, what I'm going to do different is that um, I'm not necessarily going to be... Um, I'm going to relate what's in the text with something I read this week. So I was reading a booklet by Tim Keller called The, the Decline and Renewal of the American Church. <clears throat> I've been doing some work with New City Network. You guys know that I work with New City Network as a church planting organization. So I was reading about different things, and I was reading this booklet, uh, which, by the way, I highly recommend for everyone to read, as mostly any, everything by Tim Keller. Um, if you want it, I can send it to you, or you can find it online. It's an amazing read. It's very nuanced, just very Tim Keller, informational, exciting content, uh, really academic, really nice. And as I read this passage, and I was getting ready for the sermon, I realized that uh, many of the reasons why the church in America is declining are basically laid out in this passage, but in reverse, what I mean is that the American church has ceased to do certain things that we see the church of this text do. And that's why the church in America has been declining um, for, for a while. So these are not all the reasons why they laid out uh, or the reasons why the church is declining in America. But um, it's just a few of them. Uh, so I'll be contrasting a few of, of, of those characteristics uh, that I found in this study. And um, let me just give you some of them. The first characteristic that I see in this church is radical faith. If you looked at the, at, the, at the text, the disciples and the growing church in Jerusalem, they, were, they, they continue to be relentless in preaching the gospel. They, they will not stop preaching the gospel. They will not stop healing the sick. They were delivering the, the demon-possessed. They were continuing to bless the community around them. But if you remember in chapter 4, they were prohibited to do this. Chapter, chapter 4, verse 18 says, this is their first arrest. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This was again done by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of Jew, uh, Jewish leaders that were in charge of uh, everything from religion to civil society. It was a group of about 71 uh, people, including the high priests, some Pharisees, some Sadducees, and other uh, leaders of Israel. So they gathered the first time they were uh, arrested, and they told them not to do this. And now... They continue to do it, and they are here again, arrested for the exact same reason. So, these this, this apostles were not intimidated at all, and they were arrested once, they were freed, and instead of just stopping or saying, woof, that was a close one, we're not going to do that again, no, they prayed for more boldness to preach, and God granted their petition. So, they're here again. In jail for the same reason before the same people. Why? Because they were stubbornly obedient to God. They had a conviction that was very radical. 
and also very annoying to the, to the Sanhedrin. This time, though, it was not only Peter and John, which was the first two people that were arrested. This time, we are just told that they are the apostles. So most likely the 12, probably more. Their faith was radical. Their faith was not a wishy-washy, lukewarm faith. They were all in. They were stubbornly obedient to God. Now, one of the reasons why people say that the American church is declining, and this is not exclusive to America, it's mostly the Western church, is that they find that the American faith is a lukewarm faith. In this study that I read, Keller quotes a Christian legal scholar named Dean Kelly, who wrote a book in 1972, and he says about many American churches that they have adopted, or in Kelly's, Kelly's words, relativism, relativism, lukewarmness, and individualism, all of which he identified as evidences of social weakness, that is, marks of a weakening community that cannot coalesce powerfully around a life or a shared faith, meaning forgiveness, love, and spiritual growth in God. These three words, relativism, lukewarmness, and individualism, are characteristics that outsiders have also used to describe American or Western Christianity. Kelly continues to say that the mainline churches adopted a therapeutic, therapeutic view of the self and dropped traditional Christian ethical structures. So many people call this nominal Christianity. The church in America has become nominal, meaning that it's no longer a faith that you hold on to. It's just a thing or a tradition you do. A lot of people in America say they're believers because they go to church or because they grew up in a specific place or because they just ascribe to a certain set of morality, of morals. The church in America is becoming a tradition and a nice little good thing that people do to feel good. But the church of Acts calls us to be a church that is truly, deeply, strongly, and radically grounded in faith, in Jesus, in scriptures, and in Christian living. So the first question I have for us when we look at this text is, is that us? Are we a radical church that is stubbornly obedient to God? Is that what defines us? Or are we people who just like the idea of Christianity? We assent, we agree with some of the tenets of our faith, and we like attending church. It makes us feel good. What kind of faith do we have? Is it a relative? Like, well, yeah, but not really. Maybe the Bible doesn't really mean it that way. I mean, it's not so radical. Is it a lukewarm church of faith? Is it an individualistic faith? Is it about me and my relationship with God? I think this is a good challenge for us today. And we are called to have a strong, radical, bold, bold faith in Jesus. Let me move on to my second point, because having a radical faith moves us to the next characteristic I see in this church, that it was a bold church in evangelism. We see in verse 20 that the angel 
appears to them, and the angel gives them a specific message. And the angel tells them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And they obeyed. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, early in the morning, and began to teach. Then somebody was sent, and, 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 and they tell them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. They were bold in evangelism. They obeyed the angel. The angel uses a specific kind of word that is really interesting and very good for us. He tells them to speak to the people all the words of this life. Other translations use the words of this new life, and others say the words of life, which is actually what Paul uses to reference the gospel in Philippians 2.16. He calls it the word of life. So our message, what, what the angel commands the church to do is go preach the word of life, the gospel. This is what we are told in Hebrews 2, that the word of God is not only the word of life, but it's also living, it's active, it's powerful. And I want to make sure that we understand that our faith is not something that we just assent to or that we agree with or that we understand. It's something that we are to share. It's a message that brings life to people. It's the word of life for you and for others around you. Our faith is a message that brings abundant and eternal life to people. I was at the service this past week uh, for the Campbell family, and uh, the pastor, Jack is his name, I believe, said something that was really good. It was a good reminder for everyone there. He started this, the, the service by saying, nobody wants to be here. Nobody wants to experience these moments. Nobody wants to be in a funeral service. Nobody wants to go through this pain. It's uncomfortable. And he said something that was so good. He said, but where else can we go? And I was reminded one more time of something that I constantly forget. In the face of death and tragedy, there is no amount of money, success, education, power, fame that will help you. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter how much money you have. None of it matters. You're facing the end of your life or the end of somebody's life. And our hearts cannot even fathom what it means. I cannot, I cannot understand what it means to lose a child or a brother. But the, the, the pastor said, and he quoted, what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus told the disciples, are you going to leave again? Because he told them to drink his blood and, and eat his, uh, his body. And Peter responds in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That is our message. The message of Jesus, the message that Jesus came is the only message that has words of eternal life. That is the same message that this people took to the other people are in Jerusalem. This is the gospel. Our message, what we have, our faith, what the Bible gives us and commands us, commands us to share with others is what brings life to people. 
I was at that service sitting and looking at a family who just lost a, a son, a brother. And every time somebody would get up and sing, they would sing. Every, every time somebody would read a scripture, they would just close their eyes and receive the scripture. I, I cannot understand how that works. There, it doesn't make sense that a song that talks about a God will, would, will bring comfort to you. But that's what was happening. Because our message is the message that brings abundant eternal life to people. It's supernatural. They understood it and obeyed it. They were bold. They preached it to everyone. Even if that meant they were going to get in trouble. They understood that their faith needed to be shared with others. And they were bold in evangelism. Because sharing our faith is obedience to God. They did exactly what the angel told them to do. And they were found in the temple sharing their faith. In comparison, in contrast, another reason why the church in America is declining is because America has stopped, or Christians, Christian Americans have stopped sharing their faith. Barna is a group that does a lot of um, statistics, and Barna Group did a study in 1993 about what, what, what people thought about, about sharing their faith. And the result of that study uh, says that 9 out of 10 Christians in 1993 believed that sharing their faith was an essential part of their faith. This is 1993. They did the same study 25 years later in 2018. And the, show, the, the study showed that only 4 out of 10 Americans believed that sharing their faith was an essential part of, their, uh, of Christianity or their faith. There was a drop of five points. I believe that one of the reasons why the church in America is not growing as fast as they should is because we're not doing the basics. And if you remember the basics, as a great theologian, a Mexican theologian that I found in an event, remember this guy told me what were the three things that he would always do? A Christian should do three things. Read the word. Pray and share your faith. This, I, was, I was told this by a guy that just was an, a regular attender of a church. I believe that we're not doing the basics. We're simply not sharing our faith. We're simply not, not praying and we're not reading our word. That same study of Barna Group, the editor says, Roxanne Stone, the truth is, most Christians are busy with other things, the day-to-day -day of normal life, jobs, kids, budgets, sports, weather, and what's premiering on Netflix this week. We don't have time, or we don't make time. We're not sharing our faith. We're not a church that is known for bold evangelism. And this is me. It's not, I'm not here just throwing stones at you. I'm here preaching at myself as well. I have to confess that I am a chicken sometimes at sharing my faith. Uh, between home, homeschooling, kids, sports, education, work, and life, I can barely remember to share my faith. And I am a pastor. 
this past week, uh, I took my son. He's playing baseball, and so we, we took, I took him to, to his training. And I have an hour just doing nothing, but uh, I kind of thought I'm going to start talking to the parents, and I'm going to try to engage with them. But I was in a phone call for a New City Network trying to do something with uh, a project that we have. And there's this, there's this family that lives literally five minutes away from our house, maybe less than that. And the dad and the kid has been inviting us to their house to work out or to play or to do something. And I just haven't had time to engage with them. It's not even that I'm trying to find a way to connect with them. They're begging me they're to connect with them. In fact, thankfully, my son, Joel, when we were leaving, he's like, we really need to go with them. They keep inviting us, Dad. They're like, we should probably invite him to church. And I'm like, yes, we should. <laughs> we just don't have the time. We ju we're just too busy. And that is part of the American mentality. In fact, 55% of Americans don't take their paid time off that has been offered to them. That is insane. And the reasons they give for not taking time off is fear of looking like a slacker, fear of being replaced, fear of returning to a pile of work. Those are some of the things that we're fearing for not, or the reason why we're not taking time off. The reality is that we're not prioritizing sharing our faith, and we need to make space for it. We need to be brave. And let me move on to the last point before I spend time in application. The third characteristic I see in this church is that they had supernatural awareness. And what I mean by that, excuse me if I don't sometimes say the things the best way, English is not my first language, but they, they understood and they, were, they had a conviction that there was a supernatural wor world. It's not that they had a, an a extreme awareness, supernatural awareness. Does that make sense? I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying. But supernatural awareness, what I'm trying to say is that they were convinced that there was a supernatural world. They knew they had help from above. They were aware and convinced of the supernatural world. They saw demons possessing people. They saw demons fleeing people. They felt the Holy Spirit filling them. They saw miracles. Nobody could tell them otherwise because they were eyewitnesses. They touched that. They knew angels were real. They knew healing was real. They knew deliverance was real. They knew the Holy Spirit filling them and making them speak other languages was real. They knew that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was real. They knew this not by a class on systematic theology or pneumatology or anything else. They knew because they experienced it. They saw it. They touched it. They felt it. They understood that everything they were doing was deeper and more meaningful than they thought. Their message even was supernatural. They saw the word of God, the gospel, changing lives before their eyes. They understood what Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. They saw it live. They were not hesitating because they knew that they had supernatural help. They had help from above. They had help from God, 
from Jesus, from the Holy Spirit, from angels. Everyone was behind them. The message that they were proclaiming itself had power. And that is the last thing I'm going to mention of why the American church is also declining. Because we don't believe that. The third reason or another reason why the church is declining in the West is because it's become a naturalist faith. This was surprising to me because it comes from a Presbyterian. In 1923, John Gresham Machen published a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And he argued that liberalism attempted to create a de-supernaturalized Christianity. This is what he said. This modern, modern naturalistic liberalism is the worldview that brackets out the supernatural or transcendent, that insists all things have a natural empirical cause. The root of the movement is naturalism, that is, in the denial of any entrance of the creative power of God. Summarizing, Christians have learned to explain things away. We are more inclined to disregard the supernatural in an effort to be more acceptable. This is exactly what Machen said about many churches. He says that they were shedding its historic religious beliefs and faith in an effort to become acceptable to the modern world. Because we have been trying to be more acceptable to the modern world, we are getting rid of anything that's supernatural because people think it's weird. But what we're doing is that we're shooting ourselves on the foot big time. Because everything about our faith, everything about the Bible, everything about Jesus is supernatural. But the reality is that we live as if it wasn't. Especially when it comes to sharing our faith. We act as if we are the ones who will convince or convert people. We think that it's up to us. And I call this, and many people call this, functional atheism. Meaning, we just say we're Christian, we affirm that we believe in God, some of us even know about apologetics and can argue for the existence of God, but we live as if it's a complete lie. And this is where I want to spend most of my time. We have supernatural help. We are not alone, and we need to wake up to see that every day. We need to understand that with us is a host of the A-team of the A-team. We have the three most powerful beings in the whole universe behind us every single second of our life. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're with us. They understood that. We don't. We go around driving our cars, doing all the things that we do, going into our homes, paying bills, doing all the things that we do as if they don't exist. So we don't share our faith because we're not even sure they exist. We have supernatural help. Not only from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we also have angels 
who are messengers that God sends to help us. And not only that, the very message that we bring is alive. What else do we need? God has given us everything we need. And the funny thing is that we not only have help to do the work, we have help to get the results of the work. In fact, the results are not even up to us. The reason why everything in the book of Acts happened is because of Acts 1.8. Because Jesus told them, go back and wait, because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The whole book hangs on this premise. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are using the help they were giving. Not only to do the work, but to get the results of the work. Chapter 1, chapter 2, uh, chapter 1, there's 120. Chapter 2, there's 3,000 more, 5,000 more. Chapter 3, there's thousands more. Every chapter, there's like 1,000 at least that get converted. Jesus told us about this. In John 16, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. What's his name? The helper. But if I, will, if, but if I go, I will send him to you. And, when you. and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. Who is going to convict the world about their sin? You? No. Me? No. The church? No. You're, how smart you are? No. Your theology? No. Your moral character? No. The Holy Spirit will convert people, convict people concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. We have supernatural help. They had so much help that the leaders of the city were jealous of them. In, in verse 1, they, they were filled with jealousy. The, the, the high priest of the entire nation looked at what the, the disciples were doing. These fishermen, these uneducated people, were blessing the city so much that these people, the powerful people, were jealous of them. And they arrested them. And then they go try to find them where they put them, and they're not there. And this high priest and everyone is like greatly perplexed about them. And they were wondering what this would come to. This is the high priest. These are the, the, the theological elite of, the, of that day. And they were like, what is happening? Where is this going to end? And then they go back and get them and they're nice to them because they're confused. And they're now afraid that they're going to be stoned by the people. That is evidence of supernatural help. Not only that the angel appeared and freed them, but that everything that was happening was not normal. I'm not here to point out why the American church is so bad. I'm here to point out what is it that we have to give and the tools that we have to accomplish what God has given us. And I want us to get excited about the supernatural help that we have. I'm not saying it. It's not my idea. It's not this 
weird thing that Chewy came up with. No, this is what the Bible says. We have help. When you want to talk to somebody around you and you're feeling fearful or maybe you're uh, guessing, second guessing yourself, maybe we should just remember it's not me. Let me see what the Holy Spirit does. Let me see what, what God himself wants to do. We should take the step. We should use this help. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. Pray for the person you're next to anywhere you are. Please know, please understand all of us that we have help, that God is with us. The supernatural world exists. Give it a try. Trust God. I was talking to Robert before the service, and, and he said something that's true. God is not afraid of your questions and your tests. He will pass them all each time. And if you're a believer in the same way that we're not the ones who save others, the gospel, this message, assures us that we are not going to evangelize on our own effort. We don't have to do this on our own effort. I don't want you to be, feel guilty that you're not doing it. I want you to run to Jesus and get the help that you want. You can go to him and honestly say, Lord, this is hard for me. It's really hard for me to share my faith. I'm afraid. Help me. And by his grace, God will give you both the will and the help to work what you need to do what you need to work on. That's the promise that we have in Jesus. And to be honest, most of us, including me, we must repent from our functional atheism because that's how we live. We fear men. We disobey God. We don't, we don't often share our faith. We grieve the Holy Spirit because we put our trust in ourselves or in our devices and we don't do what we're supposed to do. But if we repent, we trust that God has already forgiven us. Because even those sins have already been nailed to the cross. There's nothing you need to feel guilty about. Jesus is the only one who lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. Jesus came and he did not fear men. Jesus came and he obeyed the Father perfectly. Jesus came and he shared not only the message, he shared his own life with us. He gave his own life for us and hung on a cross so that you and I can be free of guilt and that we can be forgiven. So we can now be free and be honest and say, God, this is hard for me. Help me. Help me see that, you, that supernatural help that you've given to me. As Christians, we don't, we don't walk in guilt. We don't walk in fear. We don't, wor- we don't walk and we don't do Christian life feeling bad about ourselves. We rest in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not a believer, I do want to say that this message I'm talking about is the only message that brings life real, true, abundant, eternal life to anyone. That without it, we would spend eternity without hope and love 
and peace. But if you want to go and give your life to Jesus, you want to uh, surrender your life to Jesus, all you need to do is repent from your sin, stop living your life on your own terms, turn to Jesus, and he will give you this immense, beautiful life. Not because of what you do, but because of what he's done. So I want to finish by telling us and giving us a challenge. Not in our strength. Let's be a church that is bold because we have supernatural help. I want to challenge all of us this week and the weeks to come to be thinking of, I'm not alone. I'm not doing work. I'm not going to, to, to the supermarket. I'm not driving by myself. You're not alone. You have help. You have supernatural help. Jesus is with you. Everywhere you go, the Holy Spirit is with you. Everywhere you go, he can do the things that you cannot do. Test it. Give it a try. Let's all give it a try and be bold in sharing our faith. Uh, I'm going to ask you to please stand up, and we're going to pray together. <clears throat> and if you feel like this is true for you, I'm, I'm going to ask you to pray with me and repent from fearing men and acting like God doesn't exist and disobeying his commands. Dear, dear God, we come before you, and Lord, we confess that Many times we disobey your command to share your word and our faith with others. Lord, we confess and, and repent from um, saying that you exist but living as if you don't. Lord, we repent and we ask for your forgiveness for disobeying you and for grieving your Holy Spirit and trusting in us instead of you. And Lord, we thank you because you have promised that you would not only forgive us, but also help us. And I pray that today as a church, we would understand that we are not alone. That we have supernatural help. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are with us every day of our lives. Every moment of our lives to help us not only do the work, but also to reach or get the results of the work. Help us understand not only that, but that our message is your power at work. Lord, help us be more bold in our evangelism. And I pray that this year would be a church of increase in our community, that you will help us see you at work through us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And each week we, we respond tangibly to receiving God's word by celebrating communion. Together as a church, we remember what Jesus has done for us through his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection. And that he, we are here today because his body was broken and his blood was spilled for us. So if you're a believer of Christ or a follower of Christ, uh, I would like to join, uh, ask you to join us and 
come forward. You can come through the middle aisle and grab uh, a piece of bread and a cup and participate with us in remembering that Jesus has died and shed his own blood for us. And then because of that, we can have now access to the most powerful God and most loving God in the universe. And I pray that as we go, we will be nourished by that. If you're not a believer, I would like to ask you not to participate because this is a public proclamation of our faith in Christ. So with this, we remember that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You may come forward.
And as we go this week, our benediction comes from Matthew 28. So if you put your hands in a posture of receiving, I want to remind us again of... Therefore, and make... The